Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today's guest is Richard Topol. I've known Richard probably for a couple of decades now, uh, primarily through professional communications organizations. I was at the Times, I think, when he was at the Journal. We'll talk about that today. Uh, Richard is the founding general manager of ProPublica, the independent nonprofit newsroom that produces investigative journalism with moral force. He was GM from 2007 to 2012 and then became president on January 1st of 2013. In this role, Richard has responsibility for all of ProPublica's non-journalism operations, including communications, legal, development, finance, and budgeting, as well as human resources. He was formerly the assistant publisher at the world-renowned Wall Street Journal and earlier an assistant managing editor at the paper, as well as a vice president of corporate communications for Dow Jones Company, the parent company, and even an assistant general counsel for Dow Jones. More recently, he, more recently, he served as a vice president, general counsel, and secretary of the Rockefeller Foundation, and earlier as president and chief operating officer of the International Freedom Center, a museum and cultural center that was planned for the World Trade Center site. Richard, welcome to The Caring Economy. Toby, thanks for having me. I, um, I, I love to open by asking my guests how they got where they got. So if you could share with us a little bit about your personal narrative, maybe where you grew up, how you found your way, the role your parents had, school, mentors. Um, we know that no one got where they got by themselves. So tell us a little bit about Richard Telfer. Sure. Um, I grew up in Riverdale, New York, uh, the Northwest Bronx, um, and uh, went uh, to the same school, uh, the Fieldston School for 13 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say one very early important influence was the principal of the Fieldston Lower School, a guy named John Seeger, who was not only the principal there, but the uh, owner with his and director with his wife of a summer camp I went to uh, quite a few summers and worked at uh, one or two others. Mm -hmm. uh, he was Pete Seeger's brother, which probably gives you a sense <laughs> of his politics and uh, values. Um, uh, a wonderful guy um, uh, and, uh, and actually a very close friend of mine, mothers especially uh, as well. Uh, and then having been in one school for 13 years, I went to another basically for eight years. Uh, I went to Harvard College and Harvard Law School and at the same time as law school, the, what's now called the Harvard Kennedy School was then called the Kennedy School of Government. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I don't get, I don't move around very much. I've spent <laughs> almost my entire life in, in three pretty small rectangles, one in the Northwest Bronx in New York, uh, one in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in the third on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, a serial monogamist. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, uh, so from uh, law school, I went uh, and practiced law for uh, six years in, in a couple of law firms, uh, moving uh, between the two with a fellow I worked for, an, another important mentor, a guy named Bob Sack, who is now a judge of the Second Circuit mm -hmm. Court of Appeals and who uh, uh, introduced me to the practice of press law, which is what I have done now on and off for 40 years, mm -hmm. uh, almost 40 years. Um, first uh, as outside counsel principally for the journal, but not exclusively, 
then as the first inside press lawyer at the journal, uh, and then uh, for the last uh, 13 years at ProPublica. Um, uh, and along the way, as you said, some other stops. Uh, the, the other, the two other important mentors I, I would cite are uh, a guy named Dick Neustadt, Richard Neustadt, who was really my academic mentor, who was the leading American scholar of the presidency. And in some ways, I think even long after his death still is the author of Presidential Power, which to me was a very formative work about how I think about politics and government. Mm -hmm. um, and a fellow named Dick Beatty, who uh, I worked for uh, briefly uh, on a leave from the first of those law firms, but has remained a close friend and who's taught me a lot about the way the world really works and particularly the way uh, government works and to some extent how the press interacts with it. Mm -hmm. Did you, um, so you found your way to Dow Jones Wall Street Journal how? Um, through the legal office, I guess. Yeah, so we, we were, um, we represented the journal uh, at Patterson Belknap and then at Gibson Dunn. Mm -hmm. um, and then they needed somebody to come in-house as the, as the work expanded and frankly, as law firms became more expensive, um, a trend that occurred a lot in the eighties. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was inside as counsel for three years and made a fairly natural transition to the newsroom and to newsroom management mm -hmm. uh, at the request of the CEO of the company, a guy named Peter Kahn, who was, yep. also, who was also the publisher of the journal, mm -hmm. and Paul Steiger, whom he had named as the managing editor of the journal in the early 90s. I remember that. And what was um, what was Peter's wife's name? She was also a journalist. Uh, Karen Elliott House, who was yep. later the publisher of the journal and, and was the publisher when I was the assistant publisher. So mm -hmm. I spent, um, you know, close to 15 years working for uh, mostly Peter, but then in the last few years, Karen as well. Mm -hmm. A formidable couple. I, I remember when I was uh, executive director of public relations at the New York Times Company, working so closely with the legal counsel and always enjoying it because it was not only intellectually stimulating and incredibly relevant to the issues of our times, but also the lawyers, every place I've ever worked, they have great grammar. <laughs> they know how to write, which is not something that is well cherished these days, I think. But I wonder if you might tell our audience a little bit about some of the kinds of exciting cases you got to work on, First Amendment or uh, Supreme Court cases or... Sure. I mean, I really, uh, I, I've not worked on very many Supreme Court cases. We did, I did work intensively on one of them where we uh, wrote an amicus brief and I helped a guy prep for oral argument. I will not actually tell you what case it was because it went very, very badly um, and uh, did what we thought at the time might be significant damage to the First Amendment. In the long run, not terribly significant. Um, he did give those of us who helped him prep for it a lovely Mont Blanc pen that I had for 20 years. Um, the pen did much better than the, than the oral argument itself. Um, and then I, uh, I also actually spent a lot of my time when I was in-house counsel um, working on the constitutional aspects of taxation of the press, which is 
an obscure area, but one I found fascinating um, and wrote some about and mm. had some fun both in the state of Oklahoma and in the state of Wisconsin uh, on those issues. I'd like to come back to that a little bit later and talk about uh, uh, digital media platforms and uh, how they are regulated. But first, um, let's let's go to ProPublica. So you were really a pioneer. You and your colleagues launched, uh, I think, an answer to a really difficult challenge at the time where journalism was being, uh, advertising was just shrinking for traditional media and um, newsroom budgets were being slashed, staff was being slashed and investigative journalism is a, it's a, it's a financial commitment, it's a time commitment and I think was easily being cut. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about ProPublica, its mission, its genesis, and uh, how you found your footing. Sure. So ProPublica was really the brainchild of Herb and Marion Sandler, a couple from San Francisco who were its initial funders, mm -hmm. who were looking to do something um, meaningful in investigative journalism for all the reasons that you say um, in about 2006 and seven, which was, you know, newspapers in particular in journalism led by newspapers was largely a cyclical business in this country until 2005. Um, and then it broke, uh, frankly, for reasons I think directly traceable to the rollout of broadband internet. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been in decline ever since as a business. Um, and they realized that very early on uh, precisely the, the sort of chain that you enunciate about uh, the threat to investigative journalism in particular and wanted to do something meaningful in that. They looked around and solicited ideas and the one they liked best was one from Paul Steiger who was in the process of retiring, basic mandatory retirement from the journal where he was turning 65 and Paul had the insight that he thought things had changed enough that you could start a digital nonprofit newsroom and you could get leading news organizations to co-publish your biggest stories if you gave them to them on an exclusive basis. Mm -hmm. And so we announced ProPublica in the fall of October, uh, in October of 2007. I was its first employee because Paul needed to finish up at the journal uh, because especially because that was the year the journal was taken over by Rupert Murdoch. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we announced that there was some initial skepticism, but we started publishing in mid-2008 um, and ran partner stories uh, that had important impact uh, in the Albany Times Union, a story that really put an end before it began to fracking in the state of New York, which has still never occurred. Mm -hmm. um, and on 60 Minutes about the government's, uh, what, what the government uh, then called Al-Hura, which was a, a Middle East television broadcaster funded by the United States government with a number of problems. And we were off to the races from there. We've had 200, more than 200 partners, uh, publishing partners over the years. So Paul's insight was very much borne out. Yeah, and you brought in world-class talent as well. Um, how did that work? Did you did you pay competitively? Was it all volunteerism? Was it uh, a mix? No, no, uh, the, 
the thought from the first that the Sandler's provided up to $10 million a year in funding. Um, in the event, I think the most they ever spent in a year was eight and a half million and took us a while to ramp up to 10 million altogether. And then we increasingly brought on other funders as well. So, uh, and with their help and encouragement, we're able to wean the organization off of them. They're still providing $2 million a year in support to ProPublica, but that's now 2 million out of more than 36 million in a year. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, in any event, we, we uh, got going and, uh, and on from there. And your, do you remember, I'm sure you remember your first Pulitzer, the most esteemed award for journalism, I think in this country. What was the first one? And you've had many since. Yeah, so the first one was uh, awarded in April of 2010. It was for an article that ran in the New York Times Magazine on our site in late August of 2009 mm -hmm. about Hurricane Katrina um, and some basically euthanasia in a local hospital in, in New Orleans during Katrina when doctors um, thought the hospital was cut off in a way that they were not going to be relieved um, while patients were in extremis. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an extraordinary uh, piece of reporting by Sherry Fink, who is not only a brilliant reporter, but also a physician, um, that she later expanded as well into a prize-winning book called Five Days of Memorial, mm -hmm. and may yet be a major motion picture under that, I think yeah. under that name. Yeah. Um, ladies and gentlemen, again today on the Caring Economy, we have uh, Richard Topol, who is the founding general manager of ProPublica, the independent nonprofit newsroom that produces investigative journalism with moral force, I'm happy to say, and was the GM from 2007 to 2012, and then became president in 2013. And uh, I think uh, this is your year of retirement. You're going to be passing the baton. Is that right, Richard? Right. Our board has just named Robin Sparkman, who is the CEO of StoryCorps, mm -hmm. as my successor. And she'll be starting uh, just after Labor Day this year. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a great choice. And, you know, I've been doing this job basically, will have been by the time I'm done for 14 years. And I've had a great time doing it, but it seemed to me two or three years ago that we ought to set into process uh, a, a transition you know, in the course of the search, people have said to me, what do you think is, is you know, wrong at ProPublica? What needs to be changed? And what I've said to them is, I don't think anything needs to be changed um, because if I thought something needed to be changed, I'm responsible and I would change it. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm not so stupid to think that nothing needs to be changed. So yeah. at some point, uh, I think, you know, if you do a job long enough, you will have done it too long. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that uh, we've gotten out ahead of that and we're gonna bring in strong new talent to figure out how to take the place to the next level. Well, I, I wanna come back to your retirement later because I know people like you, I think I'm projecting myself, but I don't think one ever really retires. You've got lots of things to do. You've written countless books, which I also wanna talk about. But um, the, the moral emphasis of ProPublica, I'd like you to sort of wax philosophically for a moment about it. Uh, does this investigative journalism with moral force really matter? I believe it does. I know you believe, but yeah. no, I mean, I, might think it's a bunch of uh, 
just hogwash or talk? I, look, I, I think it does. I mean, the way, I guess the best proof I could offer is we judge ourselves. We, we were put in business from the very beginning by the Sandlers. This is what they wanted. They wanted journalism that would spur change. And those of us inside my business partner, Steve Engelberg, who's our editor in chief, who was our initial managing editor and I and Paul um, all signed up for that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we judge ourselves by the change that results from our work. So for instance, just a few weeks ago, a series of stories we did on a program for um, children injured horribly at birth in the state of Florida uh, with the Miami Herald has led to wholesale reforms of that program. The governor just signed the bill, I think yesterday, the day before, reforming yeah. that program. That kind of thing is how we keep score. And um, we, uh, that means that we have deep implicit faith in the American people that if you tell them about things that are going wrong, that don't live up to their values, um, that not every time, but frequently, those they will insist that those things be changed. And that is the spirit in which we conduct our journalism. And we put out three public reports a year in uh, an annual report in January, then an interim report in May, and another one in September. And those, after a brief introductory essay, the first thing they do is they list all the specific changes that have occurred as a result of our journalism. Um, so this is not just an esoteric or idealistic thing. It's a very practical thing mm -hmm. about what changes does journalism prompt. Fantastic. And uh, Richard, for our listeners who want to either see those reports or follow you, it's uh, what's your, uh, your social? Um, so my Twitter handle is Dick Tofel, uh, T-O-F-E-L. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for these various things, obviously, we can, you can find ProPublica at ProPublica.org. Great. Um, do you find generationally that uh, this moral force is shared with the younger generation of journalists who are coming up? Or is yeah, it? Absolutely. I, uh, I find that our staff really does understand and internalize our mission. You know, we have discussions and debates. Sometimes they're spirited about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. We never have debates about that. Um, I think people are quite enthusiastic about the idea of being in business to reveal things people didn't know, need to know, want to know, and in the interest of changing. Mm, that's fantastic to hear. I'm not surprised actually. And I do think that um, the even younger students coming out now are going to be even more passionate about community engagement and uh, changing the world for the better. I'm quite optimistic. Um, we have a lot of young listeners on this, on this, uh, or in our audience. I wonder for them, if you have any suggestions, career advice, sort of uh, tips about how to approach their careers or what to think about or what to avoid as they are uh, setting out. You know, I don't have anything terribly unique. I would say, I, I do think, you know, I'm 64 years old. I, um, looking at my friends, the ones who are happiest with their careers are 
ones who pursued something about which they have a passion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are also twists and turns in your career. The mm -hmm. idea that you could plan one 30 years in advance is completely nonsense at this point. I think it was pretty well nonsense by the time you and I started, but mm -hmm. it's been obliterated now. <laughs> um, so you, you want to look one step ahead, but not six. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last thing, again, which isn't unique, but um, people who pick the more, assuming you're making enough to live decently um, and to meet your obligations, whatever those are, um, uh, people who pick jobs uh, that pay more over jobs they would like more are almost always making a mistake. Yep. I would agree. I, I coach a lot of people, not just young people, but even people who've been disrupted in their careers, which I think we all have at different times. Um, and I think purpose is the main goal. I try and coach people to think about what their purpose is, what's their higher, loftier goal that sort of resonates throughout their lives. And I challenge them to come back to me with their sort of purpose statement. And they always do. And I do believe that it will serve them well. And as you say, I, I often say to these young people that life it all makes sense in the rearview mirror of these careers. <laughs> you don't set out thinking that you're going to literally follow the same path for 30 years without disruption. So I agree with you. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit, Richard, about uh, media platforms, the, the way in which people are consuming news now. For example, Facebook is a source of many people's news, but it does not get treated in the same way legally or financially as a news organization. And I wonder, uh, what you think about that? Yeah. Um, so I, I think one has to look differently at these, uh, at, at the platforms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Twitter is a great, I, I, I love Twitter for myself. It's a great discovery device. Is it perfect? No. I mean, you know, the most disturbing thing about Twitter probably is people recirculating things they haven't read and I never do it, but I know it happens a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but it is an amazing discovery device if you if you if you customize it uh, with some care. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Google is an extraordinary discovery device, not so much for news, although you could use it that way, as for you know everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's an amazing invention. I I also think these things are. Uh, in the nature of um, of what they are, they are somewhat natural monopolies, mm. and I'm not sure much can be done about that, um, other than probably at some point and in some ways to regulate them. Mm -hmm. uh, Facebook honestly uniquely concerns me um, because, in a way. You know, I, 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 as you said, as we've said, I worked at the journal for a long time. I, uh, I have enormous respect for people in big companies and people who run big companies. There are, they run the spectrum like all other humans, mm -hmm. um, but many of them are really impressive. And uh, to get to the top of a big company almost always requires real hard work, creativity, uh, a lot of impressive things. I honestly think that Facebook almost uniquely 
uh, at its size and scale is run by people who, so far as I can see, have no moral compass whatever. Amen. Amen. And I find that very concerning. I don't think they are overtly evil. Mm -hmm. I just think that making Facebook as big as possible is to them the most important thing in the world. I agree. And it's, in my judgment, not even close to the most important thing in the world. Now, I know there are people who work at Facebook of whom that's not true. Mm -hmm. And there are people who work at Facebook who try to change the company. But I, uh, I do think that time and again, particularly the couple of people at the top of Facebook just don't seem to have a moral compass. And for an institution of that size and that influence in our society, I think that is extremely troubling. I agree, it's dangerous. Um, and I do think that perhaps that is a place for some kind of regulation or oversight or treatment like a news organization. If there were accountability such as litigation, um, yeah, I, I, mean, I think all of that may be true, but I, I must say the reason that I go to the trouble of saying it is I, I think none of that will completely solve that problem. Agreed. I, I, I think we do need a degree of corporate responsibility in this country. Um, we have had companies over the years that have played important roles in our society and have come up short. We've also had companies that have uh, contributed materially to society. And the difference between the two is a very, very big difference. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Um, sticking with that sort of the private sector, I wonder about the role of private equity in um, newspapers, uh, in the newspaper industry. I saw a story this week, I can't remember which paper, it might've been the journal. Um, about that very matter in that uh, there's a greater and greater concentration of ownership that's going to private equity, which is <laughs> in the same spirit, I think not necessarily driven by a moral compass, but just bottom yeah. line practicalities. Yeah, so uh, yes, it is true that most beyond private equity narrowly, um, most daily newspapers in this country are now controlled by hedge funds. Um, and that is not good for the newspapers and it is not good for the company, for the country. Um, so here's the thing about that. Um, the problem here in this case, I think, is not so much the human beings as the nature of the business itself, right? If you are running, um, if you are in an industry where you're uh, sole goal is short-term profit, mm -hmm. and which is what is true for hedge funds. And if you then buy into a declining industry, um, the only way to achieve short-term profit in a declining industry is to cut your way to great profitability in anticipation of eventually shutting the company down. Yep. And that's what they're doing. Um, they're doing it with their eyes wide open. Um, to me, the you've got to put more responsibility on the people who sold these papers to those people, mm. right? 
they didn't change their business stripes. They are not doing something surprising. Mm-hmm. When in Alden gains control of the Chicago Tribune mm-hmm. and uh, buys out, you know, scores of the best people at the Tribune, as they've done in the last couple of weeks, dramatically weakening the paper and hurting Chicago, um, no one should be surprised. Yeah. And the people who sold that company um, to Alden, I think, uh, have the responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. What do you think about um, Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post? It seems to have done good for the Post in terms of investments and um, their co- competitive metabolism has certainly risen from what I've yeah. seen. No, I mean, in that case, know. it's not it's not a hedge fund and it's been good, although somewhat of an ego-driven owner. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know Jeff Bezos personally, so I couldn't possibly have an insight into his motivations, but mm-hmm. I agree with you that the Post has thrived under his ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, he has, he said he would, and he has invested significantly in the Post. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me to have a long-term outlook on that, I would have to know him and really know his motivations, and I don't. Mm-hmm. But um, for now, uh, I think you, you'd have to say that it's been good for the Post. And I was a very big fan of uh, the Graham family and their control of the Post. I think Don Graham was an extraordinarily mm-hmm. uh, strong publisher with great values and uh his niece, Catherine Weymouth, who succeeded him, ditto. Um, but I think it is also clear that the Post could not have easily withstood the storm under their ownership. Yep. It might have. The, the New York Times did under fairly analogous ownership from the Sulzburgers, but it was a very, very close run thing, as you know. Yes. There was a moment in 20, 2009 when I think even more than we understood at the time, the Times was hanging by a thread. Um, And so to go back and say, you know, it's clear that the Post could have come through it without the sale, I'm not so sure. You know, you you hang things by a thread multiple times, one or two of them are gonna fall off. Yeah, but to your point though, it's uh, the sale is to whom? That's the big question. Who are you selling your baby to, so to speak? Um, I wonder also, I, I love local jur- journalism, hyper-local journalism. I'm up in the Hudson Valley today and just some great local papers, not just like Poughkeepsie Journal, but even smaller. And um, I, I just get such excitement from reading hyper-local stories that are written by people in the community. And that gives me hope that journalism is still very strong. It's just how it's being supported or played out that's changing. But um, there's nothing like a dogged journalist who goes out and reports a story, writes it, edits it, and um, publishes it. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on the on local journalism. Um, you know, I, I too love local journalism. I just sort of love journalism generally, but um, you know, I mean, you said before, you know, what's your advice to people? I was, you know, high school newspaper editor and a college newspaper editor this is what I've always wanted to do, but um, uh, I am actually much more worried than you, I think, about local journalism. I, I think the business crisis came first to national journalism and is now increasingly coming 
first to metropolitan mm. uh, journalism and will come to very local journalism. Um, the the economies of scale and the the necessary scaling of the advertising platforms are such that the move of advertising to Facebook, Google, and Amazon, I, I don't see how that's going to be retarded. And I think that eventually um, it will sweep in hyper-local as well. Mm -hmm. And so I, I worry about the business of that quite a lot. Fair enough. Um, I want to ask you one last question, Richard, about, uh, it kind of leads into the retirement question <clears throat> and also ties in your books. You've written, I think, at least 10 books, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, not all of them in, in print, but uh, but four or five of them in print, so. So if one wants to find them, can we find them on Amazon? Or... Yeah, they're all on Amazon. Okay, um, so tell us a little bit about your, your writing, your books, and uh, is there a book in your retirement plan? Yeah, um, so I, I'm not sure that there is. Um, I uh, mostly try to, uh, mostly enjoy writing about fairly obscure history. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my first book was about the 1939 Yankees. Um, uh, and I've written another baseball book about Babe Ruth in 1919 and 20, mm -hmm. but I mostly have written sort of slices of American history, a book about the founder of the modern Wall Street Journal, a guy named Barney Kilgore, but, but uh, books about an obscure episode in Watergate and how Franklin Roosevelt prepared the country for the Second World War and things like this. And I find, frankly, Toby, in recent years that the things I want to write are not things that people either want to publish or want to read, honestly, in mm -hmm. any great numbers. So I have taken in the last couple of years, maybe slower on the uptake than I should have been, to writing much more short form journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's where my writing, I think, is going to be focused for some time to come. I wrote a column for, for ProPublica for about a year called Not Shutting Up. And I've pulled those together in an ebook um, about journalism, and, but about ProPublica's journalism. For the last four or five months, I've started a weekly column on Substack about journalism more generally that's called Second Rough Draft. <laughs> um, and I enjoy that. And the, the number of free subscribers to that seems to be growing. And people read that, frankly, even on an average week in much greater numbers than some of my books. So I, uh, I think I'm going to stick where the readers are for the moment. Okay. And uh, are you going to do any teaching or um, is that not your interest? I'm not sure. I, I think what I'm mostly gonna do in addition to writing this newsletter um, is consulting for maybe mostly nonprofit journalist journalism and some of the people who fund it. Mm -hmm. um, and I've also got a project uh, coming up uh, at the Harvard School of Public Health in the fall trying to better understand um, the pandemic and the interaction between the pandemic and the press, mm -hmm. um, which I think, you know, I think that the pandemic, particularly from the perspective of public health uh, is, you know, I say to people, it's sort of the second world war in the sense that I think that we will be talking about it for a century. Completely. And uh, so to better understand nothing about it, pretty much, I suppose, with the 
possible exception of vaccine development went very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think we, there's a lot to unpack and trying to better understand why it wasn't better executed. And, and this relation between public health and the press is what I find particularly fascinating. That would be fascinating. <laughs> I agree with you, it's with us for life. I, also, I often think that um, there's even gonna be an element of PTSD for all of us who've been through this from you know the kids who missed the graduation or a, a funeral for a relative or just lives disrupted. Um, and how that manifests itself in the workplace and the home lives of people will be with us throughout our lifetime, I think. So I, I think that's commendable for you to look at that um, in some of your writing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, I wanna thank today's guest, which is Richard Topol, who's the president of ProPublica for a few more months, has had a terrific job there. This is the nonprofit investigative journalism organization that has done fantastic Pulitzer Prize winning work. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on The Caring Economy. Toby, again, thanks for having me. Really fun. Thank you. Come back.